Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Miss Ashley. <laughs> this morning, we are going to learn about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace. So there was a time when many Hebrews lived in captivity in the kingdom of Babylonia. This was a really hard time for them as there was a lot of pressure to follow the new ways of their captives and to worship their gods. Now, some of the exiles lived in defiance of their new rulers. Some of the others gave in altogether and they just adopted the new culture and turned away from their God. But there were others who found a new way. Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, were different. They didn't work against their new rulers, but they also stayed faithful to God. A terrifying moment came for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego when they refused to bow down to the statue of the king, even though the punishment was to be thrown into the fiery furnace. The three men didn't give in to the intense pressure they faced, and so the king ordered for them to be thrown into the furnace. But when the king looked, he saw not three men, but four. four. Amazed at what he saw, the king ordered the men to come out of the furnace. And when they did, not a single part of them was burned. And the king was amazed at what he had seen. Say that again. Awesome. Thank you, Ashley. Isn't she doing a great job? Yes. With our son's story? Yeah. It's kind of amazing. We weren't all traumatized as kids, really, you know, with some of the stories we <laughs> that came in the old. But, you know, we trust God with that, and we know that they were uh, definitely worthwhile listening to. Now, most of you uh, know this story. Maybe you remember the VeggieTales version of it, if you're um, of that generation. Who knows that one? Is it, I see a few hands up. Maybe your Sunday school teacher used a felt board and moved little felt men around and women around on the felt. Who remembers those things? Yeah, they were good, hey? Let's bring back the felt boards, I say. Who needs projectors and screens and things like that? I guess if I was a Sunday school teacher, I would say the main lesson was be faithful to Jesus and he'll be faithful to, faithful to you, you know, even in the face of adver adversity. And that would be the right message to teach. These three guys and also their friend Daniel refused to bow down to another God with a little g. They were the ones who stayed faithful to the real God with the capital G that they knew. But I, I just want us to zoom out a little bit on this whole story and see a bigger picture for us today. Because there's some good parallels, I believe, for us in this moment in, in history now, you've got to remember the Israelites, for the most part, you know, they were living in captivity in this particular point that we were reading about. You know, they, they had been taken by force from their land, from their homeland that they loved. It was a place originally where they had come from, where they were free to worship God in the way that he had asked for it. 
You know, in fact, the worship of God and the covenant he had with them was the foundation for their nation. That's what, who they were known as. You know, their kings were mostly appointed and anointed by God. But sadly, you know the story. The nation and their kings had regularly done the wrong thing. And this is how they came to live in exile. The covenant was the nation worship and follow God and his law and his protection, his blessing would be over them. Break the covenant and God would withdraw his blessing. And we know, you've, you've read the stories in the Old Testament, that God would give warning after warning and try to bring people back to him, the Israelites back to him, and, and sometimes they just wouldn't listen. He'd send prophet after prophet saying, come back to my ways. That's the better way. Obediently loving and following God was once the core foundation of their culture. It was who they were, God's people. And now in exile, the cultural and political pressure was, was against them. You know, before you could follow God and worship him, and, and so did most of the people around you. You know, that, that was the experience you had. But now in captivity, you had to keep your worship to yourself. Perhaps you might face some repercussions. You know, before decisions about society, they were based on on scripture, the Torah. That's where you went for wisdom and you could freely espouse that view. But now you're in captivity. There's no authority over scripture from your new, your new culture. You may not only be ridiculed for following God, you, you may be persecuted. You know, before there was little or no pressure on you for following your God. Now the pressure is higher and, and you can feel it. You know, perhaps they were reluctant to talk about faith or about God because of pushback. Perhaps even worse, you might face persecution. And maybe we can just identify that just a little bit today, here, in Australia. And, and, and so I suggest there, there's a, there may be a, a parallel. There's, there's some lessons in here for us. Now, I'm not for a second suggesting the pressure we face today in our country is like what the Hebrews in exile had, had, had to face. Please, I'm not saying that. It's probably not even close. I wouldn't say that Christians in Australia have ever really had, though, a central seat at the cultural table. But for a long time, we did have a seat at the cultural table, didn't we? You know, it might have been like when you, when you have your extended family around and you run out of chairs and you go get the camp chair out of the garage and you stick it on the corner and someone has to sit there. That was kind of us. I'm using generalizations, but Christians had that kind of seat at the cultural table for a, a long time. The Christian voice was probably annoying and disliked. You know, kind of like that the crazy, annoying uncle that everybody has, <laughs> but tolerated and loved in some ways. But I would think it's fair to say not so much anymore. We kind of feel the, the pressure a bit now, don't we? You know, it's a, bit, it's a bit like we're in exile in this culture of ours. The gods we are asked to bow down, they're not big statues. You know, it, it might be a, it's the secular ideologies that clash with biblical truth that we're asked to bow down to now. And, and they come from all sides of politics, by the way. They come from everywhere. 
And so there, there is pressure. There's pressure on the church to conform. There is pressure on each of us to conform. Do you sometimes feel it? In your schools? In your universities? In your workplaces? If you don't bow down to a new cultural ideology, you may find yourself being sidelined or worse. And I've heard some stories from some of you. You know, if you don't wear a certain colour on a certain day, all of a sudden you're known as one of those people. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they actually give us a good example of how to be faithful to God while living in exile. And again, I acknowledge our exile is a long way from their exile, but I put it to you that more and more, that is the gradual sense and feeling that we have here, that faithful Christians find themselves in. And I just want you to know something. This is nothing new. Because right from the moment of the birth of the New Testament church, Christians found themselves in exile in their own culture. That growing pressure we feel, I hate to say it, it's, it's normal in church history. Maybe not so normal for what we have experienced or, or the West has experienced, but around the world, it's normal. You know, we Christians in the first world, we talk about the coming tribulation, but millions of Christians through history would look at you funny and say, what do you mean coming? Coming tribulation? Say that to someone living in, in um, North Korea or Iraq or Eritrea. We're beginning to discover, to discover just a touch of what thousands and thousands and millions have experienced. And so how do we respond? Because when we read the example of the Hebrews in Babylon, there was basically three groups of people that demonstrate three ways for us or that you could live in exile. So here's the three examples, just quickly. The first thing is you could give in to the culture. You know, the pressure's too much. That group of Hebrews may have still had a faith or a secret faith, but they conformed to the cultural pressure. They just went with the flow because they didn't want to draw attention to themselves. And, and let's be honest, that's tempting sometimes for Christians to do. Even here, today, that pressure to conform, it, it can become too much. It's tempting to get plaudits from our culture, isn't it? You know, we want to be the Christians or the church that gets the pat on the back from the culture around us. We like it when people like us. And sometimes that's okay to get that pat on the back, especially if we're doing the right thing. You know, we're loving people. We're doing justice and mercy. And if the world says thank you, then we'll receive that. But sometimes it's because we've caved into pressure and we've given up a biblical truth to, and gone with a new secular norm. We, want to be, we, you know, we don't want to be known as that church and so we give in. And we get that pat on the back and we breathe a sigh of relief. Maybe we won't be the church in the newspaper after all or something like that. Is everyone following what I'm talking about? Until the culture comes looking for the next thing and then the next thing and then the next thing and at some point you know, it'll never be enough and at some point we're not influencing our culture they're influencing us 
And what we think might be salt and light becomes bland and dull. The second thing, the second example of living in exile is you can revolt against the culture. You know, some may say, see this as the way to stand firm. And I couldn't find a lot of evidence of that in this particular example of living in exile, but I'm sure it would have happened. But the obvious alternate example is the zealots in the time of Jesus. You know, they were, they were re- revolting against the Roman occupation. They were pushing back. They were like the resistance, secretly fighting against the authorities. They saw this as the only way to defend their faith and way of life. Their method of fighting, it was to cause damage to their captors. There was no concern for that nation that held them. The third thing you can do is work for the well-being of your culture or your city. And we call this the Jeremiah way. Actually, we call it the Jesus way. And here it is. In the letter Jeremiah wrote to, from Jerusalem to all of those in captivity in Babylon, here's the instructions from God on how you are to live in exile. Jeremiah 29. Work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. You know, and I actually think that that's our answer. It matches up with Jesus' teaching. You know, don't get revenge, turn the other cheek, do to others as you would have them do to you, and of course, love even your enemies. You know, God never changes, does he? So let's apply it to our situation. Here is what Jeremiah would say to us today when we feel like we're living in exile, when we feel that pressure from our culture, putting it into his words, work for the peace and prosperity of Brisbane, where you are sent. Pray to the Lord for Brisbane. Pray to the Lord for Everton Hills. Pray to the Lord for McDowell and Albany Creek and Fanny Hills and Arani Hills and Bunya and all of the other suburbs represented here. Pray for its welfare, for its welfare will determine our welfare. And so, yes, in some ways, we may feel like we're outcasts. In other ways, we don't. But we can follow the example of the four men living in Babylon and work for the peace and prosperity of our city and our nation even if we are exiles. And, and I just believe that's the Christian way. See, I believe God is all for human flourishing. I, the, the Bible just points to this. He loved us so much that he would come and die for us, right? While we were still sinners. And it's Christians in the church who have the central role to bring flourishing into our community. We have to take up that role. This is something that God's asked us to do. I don't think we're called to retreat into closed groups and huddle together and be exclusive and hope that it'll all just end someday. Paul and his disciples, they faced pressure that we would never understand and they boldly went out and brought the gospel around the world. And when the, when the real gospel is encountered, when Jesus is encountered, we believe, you know, us holiness people, we believe that society can change Human flourishing can be experienced. There is no doubt it takes boldness. 
but it takes something else to bring well-being to our cities. I wanted to show you some examples of how Daniel and, the, and his three friends did this. When they were first brought into the political system as captives and they were asked to serve, they were asked to live in a way that conflicted with their beliefs. You know, the first thing that was asked of them was, you have to eat this kind of way. And it clashed with their belief. You know, this was the first moment they kind of had to draw a line in the sand. So here's how Daniel responded. We're in Daniel 1, verse 8. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to him by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now, it seems simple, but there's a lesson there. And the first thing is, if we're working for the well-being of, of our, in our exile city, it's respect those in authority. You know, I note that Daniel actually asked permission. He didn't go behind the authority, authority's back and revolt and go against and do his own thing. He was respectful. Even though they were demanding something that he couldn't do, they were asking him to cross a line in the sand. There was, but there was no slander from Daniel. There was no tantrum. There was no anger. He respected and asked permission. He drew that line in the sand and he didn't cross it. Here's the second example. And the point is this. Contribute to the well-being of our city. We actually have to contribute. And I get, to get this from uh, chapter 1 again, verses 18 to 19. When the training period ordered by the king was complete, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is their Hebrew names. And so they entered the royal service. Just want you to see that last phrase there. They actually went into service for the authorities that had them in captivity. And I imagine in the courts of power with the, where the four men were serving, many decisions of that government would have been in complete opposition to their faith. But they served anyway, answering the call to work for the well-being of the culture where God had asked them to be. Now, what's the parallel for us? Well, let me just say this. You know, I, I support Christians going into government and being on boards and leading businesses and corporations and holding positions of influence. Not because I want you to somehow do uh, align church and state. You know, that can be a dangerous game. History has shown us. But because we're called to be salt and light and God is concerned for the welfare of our city. Because of God's word through Jeremiah. We know that. So fast forward in this story. Most of you know that eventually the king had a dream and he was furious when all of his advisors couldn't tell him about his dream. In fact, when you read the story, he wouldn't even tell them what the dream was. They had to tell him what the dream was and then interpret it. You know, like that was a big ask. <laughs> So he sent his commander out to kill all of his advisors because they couldn't do it, including the four Hebrew men that were in his service. And here's how they responded in that moment. We're in chapter 2, verse 14. When Ariok, the commander of the king's guard, came to kill them, Daniel handled the situation with wisdom and discretion. So the third thing, 
is that we face pressure with wisdom and discretion, not retaliation or revenge. In other words, unlike the way the world responds. In fact, our world is really bad at responding to pressure or disagreement, aren't they? Really bad. Followers of Christ face trouble differently. The story goes on with Daniel asking for a chance to help the king and with God's wisdom, he is able to help and their lives are spared again. That's twice now. They've faced persecution. The first was the food issue and they remained respectful. The second was this dream issue and they used wisdom and discretion. Now I must admit, sometimes I have feelings of anger when I see what our culture is up to. But anger almost, gets, it almost always gets you nowhere. Wisdom, discretion, and still respecting those in authority over us will get us further, in my opinion. You know, this is how we Christians really should be known. Not agreeing with everything, but using wisdom, respect, and discretion. Especially if our goal is to be salt and light and to influence the well-being of our city. You know, for Daniel, God used this moment of potential persecution and pressure and the actual end result went from you're going to be killed to actually having favour with the king. God gave him the dream and the interpretation and the king was happy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar threw himself down before Daniel and he worshipped him and he commanded his people to offer sacrifices and burn sweet incense before him. That's pretty good (laughs) favour that he's just gained. He's gone from one end to the other. Eventually though, almost inevitably when Christians are living in exile, there comes a time when you will have to make a stand. And wisdom and discretion may not be enough. It will happen. And that brings us to the three guys. Daniel's not in this, this particular scene. He had his own last den. As you know, he ends up in a lion's den. But for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the moment came when a new law was proclaimed that at a certain time everyone was to bow down to this big gold statue, this pagan god of the land. In church, I just want to say, in, in exile, you will find times when you have to draw a line in the sand. We may never have to face death here. We may never have to face jail here for our faith, like many around the world do. But there will be a test for us. And we will have to draw a line in the sand and not bow. The three guys refused to bow down. The Bible says the king was enraged. And then he decided to give them one more chance. Just imagine that pressure. Just imagine being in their place. All you have to do is bow down. The king's even given you a second chance to do it. The furnace looked nothing like that, but it was super big and super hot. And that's, that's an awesome prop, by the way. Thank you, Kerry. Picture something a hundred times that size. And those of you in the front row wouldn't be able to sit there. Or the second row. In fact, probably nobody. The king says, don't. I'll give you another chance. 
All you got to do is bow down and you say to yourself, oh, I won't believe it in the heart, I'll just do the action. He even wants to save me. Imagine the fear. You know, when ISIS was going crazy in the Middle East, there were Christians and other groups that faced execution. And we got, it was hard to see, wasn't it? We, we saw, heard reports and we saw some things. And my heart broke and people died for Jesus. And these three men drew a line in the sand and they took a stand and they trusted God. Here's, what, here's how the Bible describes it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. You know, even at that point, they were calling him your majesty. Even though they were serving the king and working for the well-being of Babylon, the final line in the sand hadn't, had no way out. The pressure was immense, but they chose to stick with God. And, and you have to admire their faith. Like I, I remember this story when I was in Sunday school and thinking, God, please let me have the faith of these three. Do you know what I mean? They loved God so much they were not going to compromise and bow to any other God, even if it meant death. I just love verse 18. I, I pray I'll be able to say those words if I have to face some kind of pressure or persecution or, or ridicule. In fact, whatever I have to face in this world that's difficult, quite frankly, I will trust God that he can deliver me from that. But even if he doesn't, I won't compromise my faith in Jesus. You know, a lot of you have shared stories with me about very, very difficult moments in your life, and yet you stuck with God. You still put your faith in Jesus. I remember someone said to me recently, I've always loved God. I've always loved Jesus, even through the most difficult of moments. The three men are thrown into the furnace. There's actually a good ending to this story. The king sees a fourth person in the fire with three men. He says, I only threw three in there. Why do I see four? We, of course, know it's Jesus. And the three men come out of the furnace and not even a single part of them is harmed. Even their clothes aren't singed. In fact, it says in the word, they didn't even smell like smoke. That's a miracle. And I love that story of faith and deliverance. But I'm also aware that many haven't been physically rescued in that way, in this world. People die for Jesus every single day. Remember the story from uh, James from um, Open Doors about the gentleman in, in Vietnam who became a Christian. He was the only one in, in his village, remember? And, he, and the, the government was working against him. They threw all that pressure at him. And, 
And he wouldn't give in. And they said, why? And he said, because I know God. I know him. That picture of Jesus being in the fire with us is the key. Even if, they've, even if we're taken from this world, Jesus is with them. Jesus is with you. Right there in that fire. And, and even if Jesus takes you into eternity at that point, you are still saved. We are still saved. Amen? We should hold on to this lesson today. Work for the well-being of our city, of our state, of our country. Even if we're in exile in some ways, work for the well-being of the community around us. Use wisdom and discernment and respect against sometimes a hostile culture. Let's not use revenge, anger, and withdrawal. Draw lines in the sand and stand firm. Don't bow down to the cultural gods. Only bow down to Jesus. And lastly, don't despair. Trust the God we serve will save us from the fire, but even if he doesn't, we're saved anyway. 